can open our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 11. We are going to focus on chapter 12 this morning, but we're going to get a running start into it. So we'll start again at the end of chapter 11. There's a couple of things in here that I want to bring out for us before moving forward. The end of chapter 11 introduces us to this family of Terah. Terah has three boys that we know of, Abraham, now Abram. We're not going to get too worked up about the Abram-Abraham situation because I think we all know who we're talking about. So Terah's boys, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Terah's family dwelt in a place that's called Ur of the Chaldeans. And that's where Abram, Nahor, and Haran grew up. And we don't want to confuse the name Haran for the place Haran, because we'll see both of them in this study. Abram will live in a place called Haran for a while. He also has a brother named Haran. So keep that in mind. Genesis 11.31 tells us that Terah's family, including Abram, went out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. Now, from this verse, and this verse only, it sounds like they at least knew the general direction God was calling them. They knew that they had to go towards Canaan. Of course, Abraham didn't know exactly where he would end up settling. So this family sets off for Canaan from Ur of the Chaldeans, but they make a pit stop, it seems, in Haran, And they end up staying there for a while. During the time they were in Haran, it tells us that Terah died at the age of 205. Now, there's a discrepancy, and it's only come up really to the forefront in more modern years. But Dr. Woolley, in the 1900s, unearthed or excavated Ur in Sumer. And we've got a graphic up there that we can show you. Ur in Sumer has kind of been the location that was assumed that Abraham was from. Down here in the bottom right, you can see Ur. This is the whole land of Sumer. And Ur is located down there. It's been assumed in my opinion, a bit erroneously, that this was the birthplace of Abraham, where he was from. Now, this location is in southern Mesopotamia. You can see it's southeast of Babylon, which is up here. This was a very large and wealthy city, and it was well known in its day. And many great Bible teachers still believe that this was the birthplace of Abraham. But there's another location that I think is probably more likely when you start looking at all of the evidence. The city, the modern-day city of Urfa, Turkey, has been recognized by early Christians, Muslims, and Jews as the birthplace of Abraham. And in our next graphic, this shows us where this other location proposed of Ur of the Chaldeans lies, just north of Haran. 
Now, remember that Terah and crew, his family, were going to Canaan from their home in Ur. And if we take the southern location of Ur in Sumer, that first one, what do you see right in the middle of point A and point B? Point A, Ur, point B, Canaan. The Arabian Desert, right? You're not in your right mind going to try to cross that. Even with camels, you know, whatever you need to to try it, you're not going to do it. So what they would do, they would go north following the Euphrates River. And this is pointed out by proponents of this location as being the route that they would have taken to travel up to Haran and then down along the coast to Canaan. And he'll come to Shechem eventually. They will point out that these trade routes were already established. And it was common for people to go from Ur in Sumer up to the north above the Arabian Desert and then back down into Canaan. That's how you would do it. The problem when you look at this is Haran is still north of all of the trade routes. You'd have this southern trade route that would go through the Syrian desert there and one that would go up, keep following the Euphrates, and then south. Haran is north of both of them. And so it would still be in the opposite direction that they were trying to go, even if they followed the trade routes. So that's kind of a challenge to that position. It may also be pointed out that the Chaldeans dwelt in the land of Sumer. So when we see Ur of the Chaldeans, we kind of hone in on that area of Sumer. And that would seem to be a point for the Sumer location until we realize that the Chaldeans didn't actually move down into southern Mesopotamia down here until much later than Abraham's day in about the first millennium BC. Before that, they lived in northern Mesopotamia toward Assyria up here in the days of Abraham, which really points to the northern location. So if we take the northern location of Ur of the Chaldeans, and we'll throw that up again for you, it is actually recognized by the locals in the city of Urfa, Turkey, as the birthplace of Abraham. And that's kind of their claim to fame there. It's a, it's a big pilgrimage site for couple different religions. And it makes more sense when you place Haran between point A and point B, Ur and Canaan, because they would have only had to go south a few miles, about 30 miles, I believe, and then over towards the coast and, and continue south. So it makes more sense in that regard. Deuteronomy 26.5 describes Israel's ancestors as Aramean. And it's translated Syrian in the New King James, but Aram would be the region that they're talking about. So Israel's ancestors are from the area of Aram. That also points to the northern location. Joshua 24.2 and 24.14 both make mention 
of Abram's family coming from the other side of the river in old times. The river, of course, refers to the Euphrates, the most ubiquitous river of that time. And where do you think the reference point is when we say the other side of the river? Where's the reference point? Israel, right? So it's Israel-centric. So if you look at Israel down here by Shechem and the Euphrates River, this Ur is on the same side of the river. This Ur is beyond the river. So that's another kind of point, I guess, if we're keeping score for the northern location. The northern city of Ur sat on the other side of the Euphrates from Israel. And, you know, to wrap this all up, I know y'all are ready to move on, but the great city of Ur in Sumer, again, very well known. Would the author need to attach another name to it so his readers could differentiate from another Ur? I don't believe so. I think that would have just been Ur, right? And a smaller Ur, maybe a northern Ur, would have had an extra appellation, an an extra name attached to it so that you could differentiate it from the well-known Ur, right? It would be like if I said Paris, you'd probably think of the capital of France, right? If I wanted to talk about Paris, Texas... I would have to specify Paris, Texas, for you to think that. And so there's a little bit of background information for you, but let's get into chapter 12 now. And just kind of wrapping all of this map talk up, this is the journey of Abraham. So you can, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, whether you take this to be Ur or this to be Ur, The point is, this is the journey that Abraham takes from Ur into the promised land. And we'll see that whole journey take place this morning. Okay. So there's there's your background information. Let's look at Genesis chapter 12, starting right there in the beginning. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family And from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Those are some incredible promises from God. It starts with Now the Lord had said, to Abram. And this seems to be implying some kind of continuation of the call that was given to him earlier in Ur of the Chaldeans. God seems to call Abraham and continue pressing this message on his heart. And that's how God has to get through things to me too, right? If he wants me to get something down by the end of the year, He's got to start right now, right? And I know y'all are laughing because you experienced the same exact thing. It takes us some time sometimes to get things through our thick skulls. And he's gracious enough to be patient with us. And he's patient with Abraham. And we'll see that 
He has a work to do in Abraham. It doesn't get done right away, but he's patient. He's gracious. In Acts chapter 7, we referenced it last week, but we find Stephen's address to the high priest and the Jewish council. And this is kind of funny when you see this young Hellenist, this foreign-born, Greek-speaking Jew, Stephen. He's a Christian guy giving a lesson in Jewish history to the group of the most learned Jews in the world. And he addresses them, and he mentions several things, actually, that we don't find in the Old Testament account itself, which is an interesting study if you want to go down that road. But one thing he mentions that we'll find quite instructive this morning is the fact that God called Abram when he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans, before he had left his home at all. He outlines Abram's journey to Canaan by saying, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell, speaking to the Jews of Israel, right? The promised land. So we know that God first called Abram when he was still in his hometown of Ur of the Chaldeans. But chapter 12 opens, after Terah dies in Haran, saying that the Lord had said to Abram. So God seems to have called Abram again. He left his home in Ur and moved with his family to Haran. But that's not exactly what God called him to do. God commanded him to leave his country and his family and his father's house. So we see that it isn't actually until his father's death that Abram actually leaves for Canaan. It's awfully interesting, too, that Terah's name, Abraham's father, means delay. Is there something more to that? I don't know. But it's awfully interesting. They settled temporarily in that city of Haran, But Abraham seems to still be uncomfortable. He seems to be uncomfortable there until he finally stepped into God's plan for his life fully. Interestingly, Haran means parched. And I think most of us have probably had a Haran experience, just like Abraham did. You know what God requires of you, but you just dip a toe into the waters instead of diving in, instead of going into God's will for your life fully. You get a different job, but you're still hanging out with those old coworkers. You move on from something partially, but you don't completely cut ties with that old habit or place or group of people. It's still hanging on by a thread. And I know that 
while you're still hanging on, you don't experience peace. You feel dried up, parched, haran. But as soon as you cut all those ties, you sever all those connections, and you move completely into what God has already laid on your heart, you find peace in that decision. And it may not make sense to the world, but you find peace there. Even if that means you leave the comforts of a familiar place. Even if that means separating yourself from your family to follow Christ. Jesus himself says in Luke 12, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. That completely shatters the minds of what is now being called the church. Division. He goes on, For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. And that's the kind of decision that Abram had to make. Can you imagine how hard it would be to walk up to your religious pagan family and say, hey guys, I've switched gods. What kind of courage would that take? What kind of faith? I've switched gods. Yet that seems to be the position that Abraham was placed in. But Christ puts his stamp of approval on divisions for the purpose of truth, to follow him. He condemns divisions among believers, but approves separation from the world. At this time and at this part in the world part of the world for Abraham, a man was identified with his father's household. To leave your father's house meant that you were leaving your inheritance and leaving your right to family property. It was a big deal. And this is what Abraham was walking away from. He was, in effect, trading his earthly inheritance, the things he could see, touch, smell, with the inheritance that God promised him, an eternal, a heavenly inheritance, if you will. When Abraham gave up his place in his father's household, he was trusting his survival, his future, his security, and his identity to the Lord. We see seven I will statements in these first three verses of chapter 12. And we call these these verses collectively the Abrahamic Covenant. These seven I wills are, I will make you a great nation, of course, speaking to Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we can conceptualize this covenant in four parts just to help us understand and remember it, because this Abrahamic covenant will be very, very vital 
to the rest of the Bible and actually to the rest of time relative to us. This is still vital when we see the conflicts in the Middle East, when we see everything shifting around us, we need to know what this covenant is. The first aspect or part of this covenant is the land. The second is descendants. Third is redemption. And fourth is its fulfillment. Number one, the land. God has given this specific tract of land to the nation Israel. The dimensions of the land there to be given are laid out in Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21. And this whole land aspect of the covenant is laid out in a little more detail in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. This was a unilateral or unconditional covenant, which means that it only depends on the faithfulness of one party. This contract is still active. But the powers that be in the Middle East especially are still vying for possession of the land that's rightfully given to Israel. And that's really the cause of all the hostility in that area. To see the Middle East conflict as it really is, we have to understand this Abrahamic covenant. Israel has not yet come into full possession of the land that they were promised. Many times throughout Scripture, Israel is promised ownership of this land perpetually, forever. And we've got them up on the screen, but I'll read through them real quick for our listeners. Genesis 12, 7. Genesis 13, 14 through 15. Genesis 15, 18 through 21. 17, 8, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 15 through 18, and Psalm 105, 8 through 11. This covenant with Abraham is also confirmed to his descendants. Speaking of descendants, that is the second element of this covenant. Here in verse 2, God promises to make Abraham a great nation to multiply his descendants on the earth. In Genesis 13, 16, God says to Abram, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. The point being, you can't number the dust of the earth, right? And remember, Abraham is 75 years old when he departs from Haran towards Canaan. And he still had no children of his own. He probably wasn't quite as aged as we are at 75 because they still lived longer in his day. But 75 was still abnormally old to still not have any kids. We see in chapter 11, the descendants of Shem, most of those men were having kids in their 30s. There was one in his 20s think all the rest were 30s. And of course, we'll see what happens when Abraham tries to finish in the flesh what God starts in the spirit. And it doesn't go well. 
but God still keeps his promises. The third element of this Abrahamic covenant is redemption. It foresees the blessing of redemption to the entire earth. God says to Abraham in verse 3, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul later develops this idea in Galatians 3, verses 5 through 9. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. That's telling us, and it's really tying this up in a nice little bow for us in Scripture, saying that when God said, in you all the nations shall be blessed, he's talking about, through Abraham, of course, came Christ. Christ did his redemptive work on the cross. He finished the work. He paid for our sin, and by faith in him, we're blessed. And in that way, Abraham carries the blessing to the whole earth. And a confirmation and consummation of this blessing of salvation is sung by the 24 elders before the throne of God in Revelation 5.9. They sing, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You know, we often forget how blessed we are to live in the place and in the time that we do. The gospel is relatively well known, and God has opened the door of salvation to all people. It's not limited to the Jewish people. He has opened the door. And of course, in saying that, I'm not insinuating that it ever was closed to any group of people, but it's been made very widely known throughout the nations. He has blessed the families of the earth through Abraham. The fourth and final aspect of this covenant will be its fulfillment. And we've seen parts of this covenant fulfilled already, but not all of it yet. And the parts that we have seen fulfilled have been very literal, which supports our view that God's promise to Abraham should be understood literally. Israel, as a nation, will possess the land that had been allotted to them by God. That promise is spoken of in Ezekiel 20, 33 through 37, 40 through 42, and 36, 1 through 37, 28. Israel, as a nation, will repent and receive the forgiveness of God. And that's outlined in Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14. 
and they will be converted and restored. Paul says that God's not finished with them in Romans 11, 25 through 28. And Paul does a deep dive into the relationship between God, Israel, and the church in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He explains that Israel is still loved by God. Israel is still God's beloved. And God is not going to slack on his promises. He chose them to be his special people, and he cannot break his promise that he made to their fathers, speaking of this covenant with Abraham. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. We expect to see the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant when Christ reigns on earth during the millennium. At that time, everything will be peaceful and Israel will be in possession of all the land that they were allotted. I want to turn your attention to Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, But they'll say, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell, key words, in their own land. Faith is treating future things as if present. If you can jot down and remember just those four parts of this covenant, you'll be ahead of most Bible readers. And when you're reading elsewhere in the Bible and you see something come up about Israel possessing Canaan, salvation coming to the Gentiles, Israel dwelling safely during the millennium, the descendants of Israel being numerous, or the nation of Israel coming back together after being scattered, you can point back to Genesis 12. Say, oh, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And we see this playing out. And it all started with this call by God to Abram to leave his country, his family, and his place of comfort, and to walk by faith. Let's read verses 4 and 5 in chapter 12, our text this morning. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, And Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram is very wealthy at this point. 
He has a whole caravan following him into Canaan now. Notice, it says that he took with him all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. Abram was quite a prominent man by this point. And he was very likely one of the wealthiest men in the world. In Genesis 14, Abraham pursues Lot's captors with 318 trained men who were born in his own household. So there are lots, no pun intended, of people under his command, right? 318 trained young men who can use their swords, born in his own household. So we're probably looking at nearly a thousand people that are coming into Canaan with Abraham. It says, so they came into the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were then in the land. So let's throw up that graphic again of northern Ur. And you can see Shechem down towards the bottom left of the screen, and that's where they're coming into now. They pass through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, and the Canaanites were in the land. So Shechem is in the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites were in the land. And we think, well, no wonder they were. Canaan, Canaanites were there. But the significance of this was not lost on earlier readers. You see, the Canaanites were some of the most brutal, vile people who have ever walked the earth. Their cultural and religious practices would make us shudder. And by God's standards, they were certainly an evil group of people. And Abraham is moving in among them. Talk about getting bad neighbors. That's it. Moving in with the Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now remember, Abram's still childless at this point. He's probably thinking, what descendants? You know, I don't, there's nobody for me to pass on my family line. But God tells him again that he'll give this land to his descendants. How would you react if God told you this? You're childless. He says, I'm going to give you this land to your descendants. This is how Abraham reacts. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. I want to point out to you, Bethel means the house of God. And it wouldn't be named that until later, right? But this is Moses writing, and he is making clear where Abram pitched his tent. It says, Bethel was on the west, 
the house of God on the west, Ai, which means a heap of ruins, is on the east. He built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. This is really interesting with these names that we find in here. Abraham is in a place where he has the house of God on one side and a heap of ruin on the other side in two different directions, and he's in the middle. It kind of sets up this picture of where we sit most of our lives, right? You have to decide between going towards the heap of ruins or the house of God. And that's the picture that we see coming out of this. Now, more importantly than that, we see two things that are basically Abraham's signature. The two things that are associated with Abraham's life, the tent and the altar. They both speak to his heart. The tent shows how he relates to this world. And the altar shows how he relates to the next world. In this world, he's a stranger and a pilgrim. He dwells in a tent, a temporary dwelling. He has no home here, but he pitches a tent when he needs to. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, tell us exactly what Abraham was looking for. It says, By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. He wasn't looking for a permanent home on the earth. And this is the same attitude that we should have as Christians. We have no home here. This is but a temporary place. It's to set us up for something better. This is the stage where God's plan of redemption is working out. It's but a staging area. What happens here is not the ultimate reality. There is a life of abundance that's waiting for us in Christ. We see a sharp contrast with this attitude when we get to Revelation. There's a group of people that are mentioned several times as those who dwell on the earth. And the Greek word used for dwell is katoikeo. And it specifically implies that they've made their home on the earth. It can mean to house permanently, to settle, or to inhabit. These earth dwellers have set their affections on things on the earth. And of course, Colossians 3 2 tells us to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. These earth dwellers all throughout the book of Revelation are stubborn. They're hard-headed, and they rebel against God because their affections are set on earth. The second signature of Abraham are his altars. Everywhere he went, he left these little charred pieces of ground. Altars popping up all over Canaan. 
It was a testament to the God that he served. He wasn't afraid to make these statements of faith in a foreign land. These altars surely drew some attention from the surrounding areas. You got these pillars of smoke going up. The smell of burnt flesh carried by the wind. You know, that may turn some heads. He didn't care to hide the life of faith that he was living. And to Abraham, there seemed to be an understanding that without the shedding of blood on these altars, he would have no relationship with God. That reality seems to have already been impressed on him. And as we approach this narrative in a more zoomed out view, it's easy to see how God is laying the foundation for his new nation. When we look at the historical and cultural context here in which this whole story takes place, we can see God laying that foundation. At this time, there were great patron deities that were worshipped nationally and royally, but the majority of an individual's worship would be directed toward their family deity or a local deity. And we can think of this like our political system, right? If we've got an issue in Stephenville, we're not writing the White House to try to get it fixed. We all know that would never get fixed, right? (laughs) We take it to local governmental authorities. And then it still has a hard time, but, you know, better odds than the president. It's the same type of deal with, with these patron deities. We all recognize the authority of the president, but we go to the local people first. Similarly, these individuals would entreat their local or family deities for protection and blessing. As Abram leaves his family, his land, and his inheritance to follow Yahweh, he's breaking ties with these gods that were associated with his geographical, political, and ethnic divisions. In this new land that Abraham comes into, he would have no territorial gods. As the head of what was becoming a new people, He would have brought no family gods, severing all the ties from his family. That's part of God's command. Leave your family. And having left his country, he would have no national or city gods brought with him. And it was the Lord God who filled this void for Abraham, who would become the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see all of this starting to be formed. But even in the midst of this great work that God was doing, Abraham, being the human he was, reverts to doubt. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. It was actually very common during times of drought that families would venture down towards Egypt to take refuge because of the Nile 
and the irrigation systems that Egypt had, they could sustain food longer in times of drought and famine than the northern parts of that area. And so it wasn't uncommon to see people go down to Egypt during a famine. And it's hard to fault Abraham for this because it seems like the common sense thing to do, right? The problem is, it's not what God had called him to do. God said, go to the land that I will show you. He didn't tell Abraham to leave the land, go seek refuge in Egypt. If the Lord led him there, wouldn't he sustain him there? Wouldn't he provide for him? He comes into that land and he's right where he needs to be. He comes into the land of promise. God appears to him again and reassures him. He says to your descendants, I will give this land. Re-ups his promise in a sense. Abram built an altar to the Lord. He's seeking the Lord and he calls on the name of the Lord and it all seems to be going great. And then what happens? A famine. There's a trial. Imagine that. We've never seen that happen in our lives, have we? You know, I'm a pretty no-nonsense kind of guy. I like to get in, take care of what I'm doing, and get out. Right? I'd be fine if I led some Bible studies, you know, prayed, read my Bible, got raptured, we're good. I'd be good with that, but that's just not how things tend to work out, is it? There's a lot of ups and downs along the way, a lot of downs. And here, Abram is faced with a trial. It's a test, and it gets hard for him to remain where God has placed him. How do we react when we're faced with a problem? You know, you're seeking God. You think your walk with Christ is going great. And then something smacks you in the face. Out of nowhere, a diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, a layoff. Something happens that shakes you. And you have a choice of how you can react to that situation. There are some courses in life that are not electives. They're mandatory. You know, we've got Suffering 101, Trials 101, and all these courses that you have to go through. And these things are designed and placed in your life by God to sharpen you. Don't assume that if you follow what you think God is calling you to do, but you run into trouble, that God's not in that situation. That is a false assumption. It's like a a whetstone, you know, the stones that you use to sharpen a knife. You can get a knife razor sharp with a whetstone. But if the stone impacts the blade at the wrong angle, you can completely dull the blade and the knife's useless. You have to sharpen it. You got to hit that right angle to make it sharp. And the hard reality of the matter is, that you can allow trials to sharpen your faith or render it useless. It all depends on the angle. 
And of course, we can't do that alone. We need strength from God to get through those trials and to make them do what they were intended to do. Will you let it push you to lean on God further? Will you let it drive you away from him? Unfortunately, too many people allow trials to drive a wedge between them and God. We have to keep the end in mind. And the end is not only a destination, but an image. The end is a likeness. Romans 8.29 says that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. In this life, we encounter resistance. Once we enter into eternity with Christ, there's no more resistance. Here, God is molding us and using that resistance to shape us into the image of his son. You know, when God created man, he created them in his own image and likeness. But something of that was shattered when Adam and Eve sinned. And God, before he laid the foundation of the world, worked out the plan of salvation. And he loved you enough to let his son take on your sin debt, to suffer the punishment that each one of us deserved. He decided that was worth it. And now you have an opportunity this morning to accept that payment that's been made on your behalf. It's very simple. You must ask Jesus Christ to be the ruler of your life, to be your personal Lord and Savior, and you will experience everlasting life with him. Here's the thing. He's also promised you trials in this life. But you're going to get those with or without him. You might as well go through them with him. That's the decision that you have to make this morning. And I pray that if anyone has not made that decision to follow Christ, that this morning you wouldn't leave this place without committing your life to him. Don't leave the same way you came in. We're going to wrap up our study right there this morning. I ask you to please bow your head with me as we close in prayer.